Hello everyone. Good afternoon. This is our afternoon Saturday session. We're here to practice and study the Dhamma together contemplate and receive the teachings on the Dhamma to bring them into our awareness to remind ourselves of the Dhamma to become aware of truth, become aware of the nature of things, and when we think about the Dhamma, when we talk about the Dhamma, when we hear the, about the Dhamma, it should have the result, have the effect of attuning our minds to the Dhamma. The Buddha often spoke not of lofty philosophical ideas, but mundane realities like seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, like the body and the mind, like wholesome, unwholesome, good and bad states, things that were real, things that reminded us of our own reality keep us and to bring us back keep us keep us uh, in touch with the reality and bring us back to the reality when we got lost so the idea behind these sessions is to let people ask questions about their practice, questions about the practice. If you have questions, you're welcome to post them. We've been doing two sessions a week lately, and part of that was because of the idea that there were a lot of people staying at home with a quarantine but I think that's changing a little bit and maybe we go back to doing once a week so we'll see how that goes see what that looks like but if you have questions 
please post them in the chat. Shraddha is here to help ask them, post them, so everyone can see the question. And then I will do my best to answer them. Keeping in mind that we're here to practice, not just for satisfying intellectual curiosity, but for more fine for fine tuning our understanding of the practice and for bringing ourselves back to the practice, back to the present moment, back to reality. We can also just take this as a time to practice together. You don't have to ask or answer questions. You're welcome to just sit and listen. Close your eyes. Focus on the sound of my voice or focus on the sensations in your own body. The rise and fall of the abdomen as you breathe the sensation of sitting in the chair, heat and cold in the room, in your body, thoughts and emotions. Okay, are you ready for questions? I'm ready. How should we note a melody that we have in mind, even if there is silence or a scene that we imagine with our eyes closed? Thanks. You still note them as seeing and hearing. The experience is the same. Intensity might be different, but the experience is still seeing and still hearing. There's another question from a different person that's thinking My mind will latch onto a musical beat. It is a recurring, reoccurring experience during my attempts to be mindful. Since it is in my mind, should I be thinking, hearing, hearing, or thinking, thinking? 
Again, hearing, hearing. How do I stop thinking about other people when I meditate? It's not the purpose of the meditation to stop you from thinking. The purpose is to understand thinking as thinking. So when you're thinking about anything, when you're thinking about other people, you would say thinking, thinking. If you want to stop thinking, you should note that. If you dislike the thinking, you should note that. If you're worried or frustrated or stressed by it, anxious about it. If you're thinking a lot, you can say distracted, distracted. You should note all of that. To note when there are many things to select from. Whatever's clearest. There's no, there's no right answer. It's not like there's some magical right answer to what you should note. We have to be clear about what we're doing, why we're doing it, and what the effect of doing it will be. It's not magic. It's not like a computer program or a computer game or something. You have to get the answer right. It's about cultivating qualities of mind. So focusing on what's the clearest will get you the closest to what's present. Because in fact there aren't many things, there's always only one thing, but our mind moves quite quickly, especially in the beginning. So it might feel like there are many things at once. Just try and focus on what's clearest. If there's many things, you can also say distracted, distracted, or overwhelmed sometimes. There's no magical right answer. Just try and be, use the word to remind yourself of the present moment. And go back to the, go back to whatever you're doing. How do I let go of disappointing myself when I do a habit I'm trying to let go? So this is um, a big, I mean, this is a common question and it's a big problem. Something, this sort of thing comes up often, but let's be clear about what the problem here is. The real problem is trying to let go. How do I let go is, is not the right question. It's a common question, you know, it's not criticism, it's just I have to point out that this is not the proper way of thinking about it. How do I let go implies a, a forcing, a controlling, and that's not, that's the antithesis of letting go. Letting go is, is about giving up control. 
abandoning the need to control. Trying to let go, how do I let go? This is the wrong way of approaching it. If you want to let go, you have to say wanting. What you, what you really want is for it to go away. That's how we define letting go, and it's just a wrong definition. It's not what letting go means. How do I get rid of, how do I stop disappointing myself when I do a habit I'm trying to stop? Saying, let, saying you're trying to let go doesn't mean that you're actually, what you're trying to do is let go. What you're trying to do is control, which is the antithesis of letting go. So you have to note all of that. If you're disappointed, say disappointed. If you're trying to let go, say try, wanting or disliking, however it appears to you. Letting go comes from seeing clearly. When you see clearly, you, you relinquish control. You stop trying to control because the reality of things is they're not controllable. They're unpredictable. They're beyond our capacity to write, to fix, to correct, to perfect. Real perfection comes from letting go. It's above and beyond the, the phenomena that arise. It has nothing to do with fixing them or correcting them. It's about, well, letting them go. That's when perfection, where perfection comes. When I say thinking, it prevents me from thinking, as if it was blocking my thoughts. Is that what we want? It's as if I, it was suppressing my thoughts instead of being mindful about it. Is that right? So the word isn't mindful, right? That's the word we often use. It's just an easy word, but the word is reminding yourself. That's what sati means, to remind, or no, to remember, I guess, but... Remember, remind. Remind is more the active process of trying to improve your memory, improve your remembrance. When you say thinking, it prevents the continuation of the thought. Yes, it prevents one thought from leading to another. It doesn't prevent the thought that just happened. It reminds you that that was just a thought. The thing is, when you remind yourself in such a way, of course it breaks the train of thought. It doesn't block your thought. It just cuts the chain. It doesn't suppress your thoughts. It just changes the direction. It, in fact, is a thought in and of itself. When you say thinking, you're actually thinking to yourself, thinking, right? And what you're basically thinking is, that's thinking. And that's a very different thought from whatever it was you were thinking about. And so, of course, it changes. It doesn't suppress. It doesn't block. To some extent, you could say it blocks. It blocks the continuation, as I said. This is what this is what is expected, what is intended. The Buddha said, Yani Sotani Lokasming Sati Tesang Niwarayang. Whatever streams there may be in the world, mindfulness prevents them or hinders or blocks, really blocks them. And the point is that it blocks us from getting caught up in things. That's what stream means. The Buddha used the word sota, which means stream. It blocks the mind from getting caught up in things. It it, it prevents. Niwarana, it's like hindrance, it hinders. It's the same word we use for the five hindrances. Mindfulness is a thing that hinders, prevents the mind from getting 
lost, prevents the mind from going out, keeps the mind in a very simple and pure state of, of observation. It's important that we do some work to, do, to, to maintain that. You can't just naturally see things as they are. It's not the way it works. We don't naturally see things the way, that we are, the way they are. Otherwise, we'd all be enlightened, of course. We have to do a lot of work in order to straighten out our mind because our minds are crooked. Our minds are biased. If we apply the mind in its natural state, it's going to approach everything with bias, colored by beliefs and views and prejudices and so many different things. Delusion. We have to straighten all that out. And that's what the that's the duty of mindfulness. To to prevent the mind, to keep the mind corralled in a very restricted area. And the restricted area is what is real, and what is real is quite restricted. Because there's so much of our mental activity that's focused on abstraction, what's not real, conception, rational, whatever, say the thoughts about things. Is it normal to spend several sessions of sitting, noticing all kinds of phenomena, but not the rising and falling, as those other phenomena are more prominent? It's better recommended to note one thing and then go back to the rising and falling. One, maybe two, whatever. But generally one thing noted and then go back to the rising and falling until something distracts you again. But always try to go back to... The main object, it helps focus your attention, especially in the beginning. Jumping from one thing to another isn't, generally, isn't necessarily a good idea. Generally preferred to go back to the stomach. Bhante, desires are the cause of suffering. Then how to choose right desires? Well, you don't choose desire. Desire is, is a... Desire chooses for you. Hmm. I wonder if you could call it like that, like you actually choose, because we do choose activities that, that cultivate desire. But it's the, it's the activities themselves that cultivate the desire. That, that give rise, that trigger our desires. There's no such thing as right desire, in fact. Desire is unmanageable. It's like fire. It doesn't stay. You can't say, this is a bushfire, let it not go to the trees, or this is a tree fire, let it not go to the grass. Fire doesn't listen. There's no such thing as right, right desire. Desire is flame. It comes from ignorance and delusion. So the point of mind mindfulness is actually not to stop desire or whatever. It's to 
remove ignorance and delusion because without them desire can't exist without them wrong wrong mind states in general can't exist because if they're wrong you you see them as wrong you don't have to believe me or the buddha or anybody you know that things that are wrong are wrong because you've seen for yourself that they're wrong that's all you'll never have to believe me that something that something's wrong that desire is wrong and so on you can find out for yourself what's right and what's wrong It's not exactly about meditation, but kind of related. Would you be willing to say something about how Ajahn Tang's, your style of teaching meditation differs from that of other people teaching the Mahasi method? No, I'm not, not really interested in that. There are different teachers, of course, and I don't want to go about emphasizing differences or it's all a lot of it's just technical are there any other methods to be in the present except for noting why are you looking for another method i mean there's lots of different methods and people claim them to be good for this or that i only have one method Sorry. Okay, we have some more. Uh, if happiness is fleeting, if all feelings are fleeting, then is the path to true contentment something beyond feelings and emotions? How do you start on that path? Happiness is not, I mean, the word happiness is, of course, hard to pin down, but happiness is not always fleeting. Pleasure is fleeting, of course. but So happy, the happy feelings are fleeting. Anything that you call happiness that is just a feeling is, is fleeting. So yes, true happiness is beyond feelings and emotions. How do you start on that path? Well, you start by observing feelings and everything associated with them and when you understand feelings you will stop seeking them out as as happiness you'll be much happier as a result How should we note when we're just watching and suddenly our attention is captured by an object or when we are listening and we recognize a specific sound? Should we note recognizing? Yeah, that would be fine. You can note some kind of feeling, like maybe you're excited by it or 
interested in it. Aware, we use knowing in English, it's a bit misleading, but the, the word knowing, the idea is that you're aware of something, there's some awareness that comes up. Knowing is often a catch-all phrase. Recognizing is fine as well. Please don't some uh, ways to become conscious of our mortality every moment. Well, you have to be careful about this one because if you're thinking about your your death, it's possible for that to be in a thought about the future. And the Buddha did, this is an interesting question because the Buddha did mention that, the idea of every moment being aware of death. But that's because we're born and die every moment. And the reality is that birth and death are birth and birth of a being, death of a being are, are conceptual. Reality is our minds arising and ceasing every moment. When we see, the seeing arises and ceases. It's gone. Now there's that seeing is gone by now. When we hear, the hearing arises and it's gone. When we think, the thoughts arise and then they're gone. So this practice, it's the, that's a big part of the idea, is to see the impermanence, the instability of reality, that everything is just moments that arise and cease. There's nothing to cling to, to hold on to, nothing lasting. Things that we want, they're not worth wanting. There's no good that comes from wanting them. There's no good that comes from getting them. Things that we want to avoid, there's nothing wrong with them coming. There's nothing good about avoiding them. There's no benefit to trying to push and pull all the time. Because we die every moment. How do I know when to increase my meditation time? I don't think there's ever really a bad time to do that. The only thing you want to be careful about is doing so much that you're not really being mindful anymore. And do as much as you can comfortably to the point where it's not overwhelming you but it's always good to do more if you have time. Try and mind, be mindful when you're not meditating as well. Walking, standing, sitting, lying. 
Be mindful of movements of the body, be mindful of the senses, even when you're not meditating. Then you don't have to worry so much about how many hours you do of formal meditation. Mind you, of course, it's still good to do hours of formal meditation. They're, of course, more focused and concentrated. But you need both. What I know, knowing when I notice the realization of the Dhamma in relation to the wanting, disliking, feelings, and thoughts that I experience. I don't understand what it means to notice the realization of the Dhamma. I, I mean, I guess if, if you have some kind of epiphany, I guess, or some kind of insight, you might call it, then yeah, you should say knowing or thinking. But, you know, don't forget to note the wanting, the disliking, the feelings and thoughts themselves. That's much more important. Don't get distracted by anything you might call an insight. Just note knowing as you say knowing or thinking and then go back to noting the actual experiences. Why is it so hard to meditate consistently? And I guess what they should do. Well, the hindrances mainly. There are five hindrances and those get in the way of mindfulness. They keep us from goodness in general. Liking, disliking, drowsiness, distraction, doubt. And all the things associated with them, like frustration, desire, boredom, sadness, worry, confusion, laziness, defilements, basically. Anything in the mind that's the opposite of being mindful, it's all we have many bad habits. Don't worry, it's the things that are hard are, are, are not bad. Just because something's hard doesn't mean it's, of course, not worth doing. That says nothing about, nothing about how, how useful it is. So don't be disturbed or discouraged by something being hard. We're doing a monumentous thing here. It's not something simple or easy by any means. Don't underestimate the greatness of the meditation practice, how powerful and how life-changing it is. Something like that, of course, is going to be challenging. Don't underestimate it.
this is not a meditation related question, but the person is asking, and also asking why the question is being ignored. Why cannot we seek death not as act, but end of this experience every day? I don't understand. Do you understand what they're asking? Um, maybe let me look at. Um, so they had another question that said, why can't be seeking death not as in suicide by as the act of bodhisattva itself? I don't think that it sounds like they have a different. They have a different idea of Buddhism than we do. You're going to yeah. have to be a little clearer about what you're asking. I'm sorry, it sounds like maybe English isn't your first language, which I understand, but maybe spend a little more time trying to formulate a question that, that makes sense. Sorry, I don't mean to be harsh there. It's just you really do have to, unfortunately, you have to use language in a way that people can understand what you're saying. And you may be, if you're talking about things like bodhisattvas, you may have to be clear on who we are because that's probably not something that relates to our practice. Yeah. I think one of the other questions had something about sun, sunyata, sunya. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe read the book like. Mm -hmm. They sound like they're from, they may not have. Um, there was this question that I just put it here because you already have a video about this, but what are the immediate benefits of meditation? And maybe it's also in the book, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we put out five, five videos on the five benefits of meditation. Top five, top five reasons for meditating or something. They're actually the in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha gives five reasons. We just we just studied them today. They're the five reasons for the purification of the mind, overcoming sorrow, lamentation, despair, freeing yourself from or ending suffering, physical and mental suffering, finding the right path, and for freeing for realizing Nibbana most immediate benefit is clarity of mind it's really what it's all about seeing clearly How to let go of people that you love. Again, there's no there's no how to let go. <laughs> Letting go comes from seeing clearly. If you're looking for a way to let go, you're, you're it's the wrong idea. It's, you're you're trying to control your mind. You only let go of things when you know that they're not worth holding on to. Try and understand that. It's an important. I mean, it's important. It's not not self-evident. It's a hard thing to get your mind around. But it should be fairly obvious when you think about it that, oh yeah, theoretically it makes sense. You only let go of things when you 
Know for yourself they're not worth clinging to. I guess what the problem is that we think we know that, and so we wonder why we're not letting go, but all it means is we don't really know it. We haven't really understood it on a, on a fundamental level. We may intellectually know, but that just means someone told us or we're suffering and we, we've heard that that's the problem and so we just say, okay, well, I'll just cut it off and then I'll be free, but that's not it. You're only free when you let go. You only let go when you see clearly. If you're not letting go, you're not, it means you're not seeing clearly. The only way you'd let go of something you love is if you stop loving it. So don't worry about that. You're always going to love the things you love. You're always going to hold on to the things you love until you stop with the love. And and that's a that's a that's a misleading statement because we use the word love in such a vague way. Love here, the problem with love is it it's it is not synonymous with caring or with with kindness. We we lump it all into one and think you can't be kind or friendly or happy with people unless you love them. Right? You, people can't make you happy unless you love them, and if they make you happy, that means you must love them. It's nothing; they're nothing to do with each other. The happiness often comes from the greatness of the person, whether you love them or not. They just make you happy. They make you happy because of their greatness, their goodness, because of their kindness, their gentleness. But the loving, the clinging, the the. the attachment that does nothing for you except try to keep you connected with those people connected with certain people and avoid other people you should try and use wisdom to connect to people just be aware of who you think worth worth associating with When I meditate, my feet sometimes go numb. I use a meditation cushion. Should I change up my position or meditate through the numbness? Just meditate through it. There's no problem with numbness. You can change. I mean, if it really is driving you crazy, you can change. Just move quiet moves slowly, but that's a temporary problem. It usually goes away after some time, after some time practicing. I would like to know why it's important to have the back straight in meditation. I'm asking because for me, it's so difficult to do it. Do you have any tip? It's not important. Not in our tradition. So there you go. One less thing to worry about.
mentally work through intense mental pain and feelings of hopelessness. Well, with intense feelings, you sometimes have to go carefully and slowly, but it's the same as with any other pain or, or feeling of feeling at all. You just try and see it as it is, without judgment, without reaction. It's just that when it's intense, sometimes that feels impossible, and so you have to slowly chip away at it, do what you can. If you have to get up, if you can't sit as long as you'd like or walk as long as you'd like, you can switch positions. If you're walking, sit down. If you're sitting, you can even lie down. But you only do that when that's only a sort of kind of a a retreat. You don't want to make that a habit. Eventually, you want to be try and face the feelings. But eventually you will, if you're if you're consistent and persistent. Is the goal of meditation happiness? If so, how do you know when you've achieved it? So yes, the goal is happiness, but hmm. there's a bit of a there's some some sort of problem with the question, and I'm not quite sure how to it's how to approach it. It's it's that. I guess that it's so obvious is really the point. How do you know you've achieved it? And and I had the hesitation is because we often feel happy. Does that mean we've achieved the goal of meditation? Of course not. And that's important because it's misleading. We often feel happy in meditation and think that we've reached some sort of goal. So the point is that the happiness that is the goal of meditation is so unlike anything that we think of as happiness that it would be impossible to miss. Uh, it's not even really possible to think about it. It's just so profound and complete. So there isn't even a question of knowing when you've achieved it. At that point, knowing that you've achieved it isn't even important anymore. There's no reason to, to know that you've achieved it. There's no purpose that that would serve. I guess you could say if you still have if you're still wondering, then you haven't reached it. If you're still thinking in those terms, have I reached it? I've reached it. If you ever think to yourself, I've reached it, well that's not maybe fair because after the fact you can know that you've reached it. You can know that you've attained some some goal, but there's no. It, it's impossible to miss. It's beyond that. It's beyond any conception. I'm on 
Okay, someone had asked a question last or a time before. I think that's it sent the video you had, but they are asking again. Um, maybe the time was over and the question didn't make it. My question is, how can I break the porn addiction when the connection is that I miss having a lover, but also making love to that lover? I miss the orgasm with someone special. Pardon my rudeness. Yeah, these sorts of questions are automatically flagged as spam, or, well, they're put in review because, you know, for obvious reasons, not, there's nothing wrong with this. I don't think there's anything wrong with this question. We shouldn't be afraid to talk about these things, but the words they use, of course, are trigger words for for spam filters. Well, what you're what you're realizing is there's many, there's more to it than just the craving and the desire. That's, of course, a big part of it. But um, it, it's an example of the things that augment our desires and aversions. It's often more complicated than just I want something, I like something, or I don't want something, I dislike something. We have views and ideas and conceptions that augment and support those desires and aversions. So all that means is that you have to note those things as well. If you want a connection or you're sad because of not having a connection with someone, you just have to note that as well. There's nothing special about it. Like really implicit in this question is that, yes, I recognize that the porn have, porn addiction is wrong, but having a lover is right. You know, and there's nothing right about having a lover either, or having a special someone. There's nothing special about that. There's no such thing as a special some a someone special. People aren't special. We're all just people. someone were special, I mean everyone else is not special, but there's nothing intrinsic about that. There's just experience, there's not even people really, there's just experiences. I see that all my activities, except meditation, bring me suffering. I have a lot of free time, and I'd like to make the definite shift towards 100% mindfulness all day long. What can, help, what can help me for that? Practice. Nothing but practice. If you have time, you could take an at-home meditation course we offer. You, if you're able, somehow you could go to a center or come to our center and do an intensive meditation course. Nothing but practice. How to deal with the pain in heart during and outside meditation? It distracts me so much during meditation. Well, don't let anything distract you in meditation because everything that's real can be an object of meditation so take it as an object the idea that something could distract you is not really not really accurate because everything is within the field everything that's real is within the field of meditation 
So if you're distracted, it's it's in abstraction, in conceptualization. That that's where you've gone outside the realm of what can be noted. Try and focus on the things that are real. So pain is something real. I don't know. Pain in the heart is something you mean like sadness or something. But if you just mean in the physical heart, then it's just pain. Just say pain, pain. If you have any mental re re relation and mental activity related to that, try and note all of that as well. Emotions or thoughts or so on. I've heard people say you shouldn't focus on the actual heart because of whatever might arise, but that would be I think that would be a bad idea to to be to avoid it. That would create that would create an increase in aversion and avoidance, fear of it. Shouldn't treat it like anything special. I break things in a fit of anger. I try to use the noting practice to deal with it, thinking, frustration, angry, shame after the fact. But it doesn't seem to help much. Any tips? Well, it's a drop in the bucket. The Buddha said, Tokang, Tokang, Kane, Kane. Little by little, moment by moment. When you pour water into a glass drop by drop, you don't notice anything until it overflows. But once it overflows, you realize it's full. And you've done a lot. You've done something very significant in filling the glass. But you do also have to try to be mindful when you're throwing things, breaking things, when you're frustrated, when you're angry. Why do you wait until after the fact? Don't do that. Don't wait until after the fact to note. When you're angry, note. And your frustrated note. I mean, that's more challenging, but you have to get into it. There's no end. The tip. How, what are the tips? Practice more. Practice more. Work harder. Do more meditation. Be more mindful throughout the day. Be more vigilant. That's not a criticism. That's just advice. That's what we all have to do. One day I'm going back to some of the questions. How do I deal with being discriminated against every day when I go out? I'm asking because I'm black and meditation has helped me a lot. I think that's the only way you can't change society. I mean, there's a lot of change always going on in society, but in the meantime, you can't, it's not about changing society. You can't prevent those sorts of things from happening of course that's a part of reality unfortunately and it's always going to be probably there's always it's not like we're ever going to get to a point where society never discriminates against this or that and i don't know if it's going to get better or worse but it probably gets better and then worse and better and worse if anything it's probably getting better because our differences are more uh more obvious i mean like like we're we're being confronted by them more in 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 old times of course white people didn't see black people so much in old times i mean ancient times and we're only just starting to get to the point 
in the past few hundred years where we're really and it's accelerating where we're really seeing people who are different from us different languages different accents different cultures different foods think about food and culture which become in many societies it's now become quite uh, quite normal to have all sorts of different kinds of foods but even when i was growing up when i was young where i grew up where i grew up you'd never very few black people I think the one black family in our area was heavily discriminated against because everybody else in the whole hundreds of kilometers or was white. Uh, well, except for the indigenous, the First Nations people, but they were heavily discriminated against and discriminating against, and everyone was there's always the tension between races and so on. Mingling, co-mingling, is a fairly new thing. And, and it always is going to cause tension as people cling to silly things like skin color and language and culture and food and sare saramatino sare saradasino asare saramatino sare saradasino something like that I'm getting it all wrong Sare Sara Matino, Asare Sara. I'll get it backwards. That which is important, people see as important. Or the other way, what is important, people see as not important. What is essential, people see as unessential. What is unessential, people see as essential. So something stupid like skin color, that's essential. How ridiculous, right? I mean, this was a thing in the Buddha's time in India because there was the, the there was a system, and it was very much related to skin color. Most likely because there was a lighter-skinned warrior tribe a culture that invaded India, calling themselves the Aryans, bringing with them Sanskrit or, well, not Sanskrit, but whatever it was, Vedic, or whatever the language was, Indic, some kind of Indic language. And uh, the people in India had darker skin, of course, because these other people came from the north, or they were riding horses. And if you read the Vedas, there's stuff in the Vedas about about this, about killing the dark-skinned, destroying the dark-skinned demons. <laughs> it's actually the thing, the dark-skinned demons. Um... And so in the Buddha's time, it was a thing where dark skin was considered low and light skinned was considered high by the people who were in power, of course. And the Buddha said, um, birds you can distinguish. Birds you can distinguish, beasts you can distinguish, but humans you can't distinguish. Humans are the same. There's only one human race. I mean, he said it as a sort of social commentary, I think, that we're not like, it's not, there's no such thing as races. That's what racism means. The problem with racism is it's all wrong. It's a theory, it's a philosophy, it's a perspective, the perspective of race. I guess they would say it's more like the perspective that some races are lower than others, but the real... The truth, I mean, the honest truth is there's no such thing as a being at all, right? So 
well, human is just a concept in the first place, but but if a human is a concept, then how much more ridiculous is to think is it to think of a of a human of a black race or a white race or a red race or a green race, any kind of race, brown race as a subset of humanity. It's just means of categorizing and we categorize so we can judge. It's, it makes it easy. It can be evolutionarily, from an evolutionary perspective, it's useful. If you categorize, you can you can categorize threats and non-threats. It's easy to distinguish enemies between tribes and so on. You can. It's a way of categorizing food. It's a way of categorizing actions. It's a, it's a way of discriminating. I mean. When you categorize, it's a way of discriminating. That can be helpful, practically speaking. It's just uh, that that habit of mind very easily becomes deadly and poisonous and evil, of course. Anyway, this has nothing to do with what you asked, but it is a topical issue these days. It's something that should always have been a topical issue because it's a big one. It's a big source of incredible evil. It's one of those things like religion where, where good people, what did someone once say, good people do, evil people do evil things or something, but in order to get good people to do evil things, you need religion, they say. And it's something like that. There's, but there's a point to that, that things like religion, but also things like racism, and which is a, an ideology, really. My religious studies teacher suggested that we should stop using the word religion and just use ideology. I don't think I agree with her, but there there is similarities in my mind between religion and ideology. Well, maybe they are the same thing. They're, they're very similar anyway. But ideology is, this is the, what the Buddha called view, right? How did all this relate to the Buddha's teaching? This is what the Buddha meant when he called views. Views are very powerful, more powerful than just liking and disliking. Because, of course, everyone likes and dislikes. We all have evil. But true evil requires view, requires belief. If you believe some some wrong thing, if your beliefs are wrong, they can lead to great evil that you wouldn't otherwise be capable of. You wouldn't ever think to do certain things, but your views incredibly make you capable of such evil. But simply to answer your question, the best thing we can do, you can do, is, is uh, we all can do really, is be mindful of the things that happen to us. Discrimination is a big one. There's lots of things that are going to cause us suffering in life. The only way they can really cause us suffering is if they create reaction, if we react to them. That's why particularly it's so heartening to learn and to read and to study and to watch, to listen to some of the things. If you, have, if anyone has a chance, I recommend, if you're interested in society and these sorts of issues, to learn about the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King. I don't think he was you know, Buddhist or anything, but, but some of the things are clearly, clearly Buddhist. Some of their attitudes and perspectives, and they were Christian mostly, he was Christian. Um, as most of America is, 
but his ideas of Christianity were were pretty profound and, and many of the people following that movement had ideas of not letting things not letting reaction going you know being the power of justice and the power of righteousness is so far beyond reaction so far beyond any kind of selfishness like doing this because i don't deserve this that sort of thing it can be be misleading to think i don't deserve this right it's it would be easy for someone who is discriminated against to be indignant and think i don't deserve this but that's a selfish reason much much better is this is not right you don't even have to say oh this is hurting you and try and twist it that way it's not about whether it's hurting the person being discriminated against or the person who's doing the discriminating right you can say some people often say oh this is i feel sorry for this person who's doing the discriminating because they're ignorant that's not as powerful it's not as pure the purest is to say this isn't right that's truth the power of truth such such a waja it's a very powerful thing speech that is true truth speech Okay, we're four o'clock. Any anything urgent? Anybody need help? Really need help out there? Um, not urgent, but there was a question about what's real versus conceptual that I think would be helpful for people. When you All right. say last one then, okay, with what is real and not conceptual, I wonder if there's anything that isn't conceptual, including pain, moving, etc. So words are conceptual, names of things are conceptual. The point of the naming is that it, it you're naming something that is real. The naming involves something that is real. So the moving itself is real, but the names are not real. The names are conceptual. But when you say to yourself pain, pain, it, it, it focuses the mind because it reminds the mind of what you're doing. That's the function of sati, it's to rem remember. So when you remind yourself pain, pain, you, you you remember the pain as pain. You remember that it's just pain. Conceptual is something like a cat or a dog or a person. Those are conceptual. Me, mine. All right. That's all then today. Thank you all. Have a good day, everyone. Sad.